Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with artist, philosopher Dario Robleto. There is a shorter, produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Good evening, and uh, welcome back to winter. Someone, <laughs> someone wrote me today and said it's, it's raining feathers. I thought, wow, that's good. Um, so welcome to the Institute. Um, I'm Liz Armstrong, Curator of Contemporary Art, and we are very pleased to be hosting this second live interview with Krista Tippett for her show and broadcast of On Being. As many of you know, Krista was here two months ago when she spoke with Anne Hamilton in what was a fascinating and far-reaching conversation. They covered everything from the spiritual act of art making to the strange intimacy of museums where people can be alone together. The, um, the, this interview and that one were presented um, in conjunction with the exhibition currently on view uh, in our target wing simply called Sacred, which is a series of installations that probe the nature of the sacred within a secular multi-faith society. By juxtaposing works of art from multiple times and places, the sacred exhibition invites visitors to explore historic and contemporary expressions of the divine, the spiritual, the essential, and the beloved, and to ponder the words meaning in their personal lives. I want to thank the MIA's Affinity Collectors Group for Contemporary Art for their support of this program and for helping us um, have these visits from artists such as Anne Hamilton and Dario Robledo. Um, and now let me just briefly introduce um, each of our guests, Krista Tippett and Dario Robledo. Um, Krista needs little introduction on this stage. She's a Peabody award-winning broadcaster and New York Times best-selling author whose highly acclaimed radio program, On Being, fills a huge void in the public discussion of spirituality and faith. She's not afraid to, um, uh, to discuss the big animating questions of human life from how do we want to live to what does it mean to be human. She and her guests explore meaning, ethics, and what is sacred amidst the political, cultural, and technological turmoil that is 21st century life. Dario Robledo is a Houston-based artist who's known for his highly original repurposing of rare and archaic materials. Like a DJ sampling music, and he just told me tonight he was a DJ once, um, Dario spins and shapes such unconventional materials as dinosaur fossils, meteorite remnants, hand bones and hip bones, and pulverized vinyl from vintage records. He's been called a materialist poet. I think of him as a passionate alchemist who memorializes the past while finding new meaning in the tangled roots of its history. He's a maker of extraordinary objects that are meditations on war, love, death, spirituality, and healing. Um, it's gonna be really interesting to hear him talk about these objects without us seeing them, um, but you can imagine, and then you will see them. Um, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Please join me in welcoming Krista and Dario. Thank you, Liz. It's great to be back at Minneapolis Institute of Arts. 
I feel like I'm an old-timer now, so I welcome mm. you. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, so, Dario, you mm-hmm. grew up in San Antonio. Yes. I grew up in Oklahoma. Mm. It did not snow in March where mm-hmm. we came from. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> no um, I've really been looking forward to this for several months since we first planned it. Um, thank you. Me too. Yeah. Very much. Um, so if I ask you uh, about the spiritual and religious background of your childhood, mm-hmm. you know, where would you start to think about what that means? San Antonio is maybe Catholic central oh. <laughs> in, in America. Uh, so it's, it's hard not to be around that in, in San Antonio. Uh, my grandfather was a, a Baptist minister. I, I didn't grow up around him so much, but his, his influence definitely was there in the back of my head. And he was definitely a, a passionate, passionate man. Um, my mother, religion in the home was not ever really an issue, but as with anyone, I, I searched it out on my own. Uh, yeah. I'd asked my friends if I could come to church, uh, Catholic, Methodist, I, I probably sampled every, every church or uh, a friend that I had. And I continually, you know, even at that early age was, was very, very interested. Um, so in, in my childhood, it, I would say was very self-directed. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe always in the, within the background, knowing that thing about my grandfather. There was still this kind of mysterious thing that I didn't really understand. Um, so maybe it was partly fueled by that too, this mm-hmm. searching. So, um, it, it, and also it sounds like, you know, you, you were interested in science, you were a football mm-hmm. player. Mm-hmm. You weren't that kid who everybody thought would grow up to be an artist, no. right? Or that you didn't no, think I that didn't. of yourself. I, no, yeah. uh, no, it was quite a shock. Um, <laughs> um, no, and, I, no. You know, there are two stories that you've told um, across the years that I, I, I wondered if you would, like, tell us. And one of them has to do with your mother, one of them has to do with your father, mm-hmm. about how you became an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about your mother working in a honky-tonk in Texas for mm-hmm. a while when you were pretty young, and going with her, and it really is the whole experience, being there with mm-hmm. her, taking in the people, mm-hmm. and taking in the life in that place, mm-hmm taking in the music of Patsy Cline and others, mm-hmm. and listening to the jukebox. Mm-hmm. And it almost feels like the jukebox was your first art object, although you wouldn't have called it that originally. Yes. Uh, incredibly influential on my life. Definitely leaves a mark. So, so how old <laughs> uh, were you then? You were pretty young, right? Yeah, six, six seven. And very... <clears throat> the full range of emotional experiences you would imagine in a honky-tonk. Uh, as a six-year-old, camped next to the jukebox, watching it play out, it, it really did leave a mark. And uh, and in hindsight, I can look back and realize, I, I think those were truly my first artistic, aesthetic experiences in that art was actually life in those cases, rather than just a symbol of life. And what I mean is listening, you know, having Patsy Cline's soundtrack, what I'm actually witnessing in the room as she's singing about it, made this (laughs) one-to-one connection uh, between the pop song or the country song or the art object and life. And I I think that has left a lasting impression on me, which ties into science and, and maybe an unexpected way in that 
I want what I do to be metaphor and have a practical, I wanted to do something too mm -hmm. in life. Um, and that's part, partly in my science thinking, but also it's very much rooted in that, in seeing music, um, you know, we, we say soundtrack life, but it really, it was really predicting, even predicting what I was seeing in the honky tonk. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then um, the other stories later on, your father was a biologist, correct? And mm -hmm. and uh, was from Nicaragua, mm -hmm. and you didn't really spend that much time with him growing mm -hmm. up. No. But then um, you've told this story about, it sounds like when you were maybe in your early 20s, mm -hmm. you were depressed, and you went to stay with him in mm -hmm. Miami. And mm -hmm. we have the Beatles to thank, your, your father and the Beatles to thank for you truly having this epiphany. Yes. No, I really, I, I didn't know what an epiphany was until I had one. It really... <laughs> It, and it, it really, it really was that. It, I mean, within 24 hours, I, I still don't know how to explain it. It truly, I was not an artist, and then I was an artist like that. And, but I didn't know the first thing about art. I, I didn't know what it, it was as crazy then as it sounds when I say it today. And it was related to this experience of what was clearly deep depression now when I look back, um, visiting him, sort of, you know, every young man has to sort of come to terms with that at some point. And I just, I guess I needed to spend time with him. And really the only thing we could communicate on were, was music. And he was a huge Beatles fan. He, he pretty much learned English many, and his brothers from Beatles records, which oh, really? I, love, I love that story uh, that he told me. From, from the lyrics, but I don't know, one day he, he left and accidentally left Sgt. Pepper playing on repeat uh, on the CD, and I was, you know, locked in my room in some terrible state, and so for 24 hours I heard Sgt. Pepper through the muffled wall uh, in the other room, and something, something just changed. I don't know how to explain it. But when I came out of the room, I was an artist. <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, I haven't looked back since. I mean, I know it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but it really was that. I, I really didn't know what I was doing, but I was like, I just knew I was an artist. But you, and you've said that, um, I mean, you did bring out some pastels and a pad of paper. Right, and you well, started. Yeah, the first thing I told him was, "Please take me to an art store." Oh, and, you did. Uh, you yeah. didn't happen to have pastels. I wondered no, about that. You didn't have no, pastels on no. hand. <laughs> and, and that shows you too that I I didn't know what it meant to be an artist. So I thought, well, pastels or uh, paper. I didn't. I didn't even know what I needed. So that was where I started, and I I'll never forget that. Every artist has it. That blank page, and the fear. This. The, guttural fear in my stomach, like, oh my God, anything's possible. I don't know what to do. And I was drawn, I was fear, uh, scared and, and drawn to it in the same way. And I still have that feeling. It never goes away. I realize that now. Um, do, do you still yeah. have whatever it was that you drew or wrote? Somewhere, I'm sure. I haven't looked at it in a long time. Yeah. I probably don't, <laughs> don't want to see it yeah. uh, anymore. But, but yeah, it was, it was a turning point. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting uh, that both of these stories have music in them. Mm -hmm. Music is absolutely central to them. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a kinship in you, a kinship with the DJ mm -hmm. and the idea of the DJ 
runs all the way through a lot of the art projects you've done over the yes. years. Yes, it's for me to begin to talk about the sacred, I, I have to start with music. And nobody, uh, I wouldn't say music was a, a big issue or I, none of, I didn't know how to play an instrument. It was, it was maybe just something instinctual. I, I just took it very serious. And you know, oddly, I never, I never learned how to play an instrument. And I always, I mean, one of my great, one of the things I'm so envious of to this day is uh, a band, being in a band, mm -hmm. and I've never been in a band, and I wish so much I had been and could have been, and even to this day, I, since I was a little boy, to this day, I've kept a journal of potential band names and song titles, <laughs> really, um, just in case I ever got in a band, that that it, because I couldn't play an instrument, I could contribute a great band name right away, um, and that's turned into its own art object over the years, I found ways to finally get those things out without the music. But uh, yeah, it's just part of, I don't know, the, make the science part of my brain wonders what, how am I wired uh, to, to, to lean this way. But, yeah. And, and actually, though, some of your earliest sculptures were made from grinding vinyl records. Mm -hmm. And that was a turning point in my, my study and passion in DJ culture, uh, how do I turn that into, or how do I use those skills in the sculptural realm? And that was a really ter big turning point in my work as an artist. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, like how do you take the actual skills of the DJ, uh, song selection, sampling, scratching, uh, beat matching, just all these things a DJ would do, but then how do I, how do I turn it into an object? And so very simply, for example, the idea of mixing two records together, mm -hmm. I thought, well, what if I really melted them in a pot and mixed them together? Uh, and what would happen? Why, why, why did I choose those two songs? And then what would I turn it into and why? So I found this parallel in the sculptural realm to, mm -hmm. to take the skills over. And that was a really big, big uh, breakthrough was to hand, DJs already handle the vinyl as an object as much as an audio experience. So I just kind of took that to an extreme. Like, what if you kept scratching a record until it turned to dust? Uh, like I kept giving myself these kinds of challenges. Mm -hmm. Would you talk about the, I think it was one of your early sculptures, which was probably maybe the most autobiographical, the one you did about your parents. Mm -hmm. um, our sin was in our hips. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, that was a piece uh, dealing with the, the background of, of music in my past. But to, I guess to describe what it, what it looks like, it's if you can picture a male and a, or pelvis bone, the pelvis bone of a human, and I had put a male pelvis bone on top of a female, and they're just very delicately balanced on top of each other in the position of, of a male laying on top of a female. If you could imagine an x-ray of a body um, and just that part. But I made, I made them out of melted vinyl records, and, and the male was made from my father's rock and roll records, uh, melted vinyl records. And the, Female pelvis was made from my mother's 45 uh, record collection, rock and roll records. And um, it was grappling with my mother, I was always fascinated with her talking about 
rock and roll in her youth, and I was just so envious of it because because she of, was there. <laughs> was she, well, because so much was writing on your musical selection, like oh. the actual sinfulness uh, in the way that you moved your hips, or your, the dancing had some charged. Uh, spiritual, sinful behavior attached to it. Yeah. You know, every, everybody knows famous uh, Elvis, the pelvis. And, <laughs> and so I, what I'm saying is that when I go into a record store, I, nothing's writing on my decision. Like sin is yeah. not at stake right, when right. I'm buying a record. And I wish there was, because I, I want- You're I, not going to go to hell because yeah, you bought that record. Yes, and, and I just like that there was not much writing on it, or that, that it was the rock and roll's radical moment was a moment that maybe can't be recaptured in the next generations. But I know that I am here, and many of us, I would argue, are here because of the rock and roll in, in, in this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In, in the sense that the music had to put them in the right time and mood, and all kinds of factors had to come into play. So, and I know enough about my how I got here to know the role those records played in my creation. So, <laughs> uh, I've never thought about music in quite this yeah. way before. <laughs> so, that, so it is it is biographical in the sense that that those pelvises are touching, and they are made of the substance that got them there, and which I would argue got me here, and probably many of you are here because of that. Um, so I like that music is that directly tied to creation. You know, it's not just, again, it's not just metaphors. Like, it really happens. Mm -hmm. oh. And this is exactly why my Southern Baptist grandfather forbade dancing. Oh, oh really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. yeah. it was a slippery slope. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> so. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the artist Dario Robletto at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. So... You know, there's a phrase, there, there's some phrasing that I really appreciate now of the citizen scientist, and mm -hmm. this is also language you use because mm -hmm. you work with science, mm -hmm. um, the citizen artist. Mm -hmm. And so as I was you know, preparing to talk to you, I felt like, you know, you're kind of a DJ slash artist, mm -hmm. but I really also think you are an artist philosopher. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how I want to draw you out tonight. Mm. Um, you know, you deal in all your work either directly or indirectly, with the big subjects, mm -hmm. you know, life, mm -hmm. love, death. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, somebody wrote about you, Dario Robletto is a resurrector of dead things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, that's a compliment, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you, mm -hmm. you talk about, and, but, but what you don't do, and I can imagine that people might think this when they hear about your work, mm -hmm. It's not about found objects. Mm -hmm. It's about, as you say, alchemy. Mm -hmm. That's a great distinction. That maybe is more of a, you know, an art, an art nerdy conversation distinction. But it, it's a, it's an important one to me. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I find them in technically that I did detective work to go get them. Mm -hmm. But it's, I don't leave them in the state that I find them. Uh, often the, the materials I use. It's about the transformation. It's about what was hidden inside of it that only the artist's touch could have uh, teased out mm -hmm. through, through alteration. And that's, you know, 
that's alchemy 101 probably. Uh, and I, I like thinking of myself in that, in that lineage, that, that the, through transformation of materials, that there are other things at stake in the transformation, some of it being spiritual even. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of it being just chemical, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm interested yeah. in... There, that gets at the scientist in you as yeah. well. No, yeah. I, I'm interested in the molecule up, up to the spiritual uh, and everything in between in the material. And, um, and, and it changes how, I, how you approach changing something because I, I don't... Um, the combinations that I choose to... Uh, use I'm trying to draw out new meaning through through poetic uh, interaction, but but ask actual material interaction, but right. also the language of what the material was. Uh, I often use in my work to, which is why I use this term materialist poet. That I I always try to to em- describe your work. Yeah, I always mm-hmm. try to emphasize the role of language in this process because mm-hmm. for an object maker, it's a little it's a little backwards in that the language often comes first rather than the object comes first and then the language. So often I write my title, my material list is completely worked out before I ever start the object. And I don't even know what I'm going to make half the time until that has satisfied me. Mm-hmm. And and it's so there's an alchemy on a language level because I'm trying, but I'm always still trying to get back to an object. Um, Somewhere, I, I think this was part of... Um, I looked at so much, and I didn't keep good notes about where it came from. Okay. But um, this was this was on a website that was about one of your ex- exhibitions, and it said that you ask yourself questions, jot down instructions, or toy with a poetic phrase, which is what you just described for us, and that here's a to-do list that you'd called from challenges you pre- presented to yourself across the years. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this list? I do. Uh, I mean, I'm just going to read a few of them. There are 20 questions or questions or wonderings, I'd say. Mm-hmm. You know what this reminds me of? Mm. It reminds me of um, how Einstein said that, you know, you know, I mean, his science was all about pursuing mm. wondering, mm-hmm. right? So, like, here you said, okay, so here's number three. Culture dormant bacteria from grooves of mother's rock and roll records. Mm-hmm. That's just really an enduring <laughs> theme. Um, mm-hmm. and I, did, I did do that, by yeah, the way. Oh. You did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, number five, number six, how do I change the sound of the ocean? Mm-hmm. Still working on that. Oh. Okay. Mm-hmm. How do I reunite a million year old raindrop with a million year old blossom? I did do that. Did you? I did. How did you find yes. a mil- million year old mm-hmm. raindrop? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is what I like to push. This is where only language could have got me there, and then I have to figure out, because I just wrote that down. So you write the question, and then you have to pursue the question. Yeah, and, and I have to pursue, is this possible? Does such a thing exist? Uh, if it does, where is it? Can I get it? Uh, all these other things fall out. So, yeah, so for example, uh, million-year-old blossoms exist uh, trapped in amber, for example. Right. Or... The, the raindrops are just so beautiful. For example, you know, it rained tens of thousands a million years ago. Uh, a particular raindrop got caught just in the right moment when some sap was coming out of a tree. And before it had a chance to evaporate, another layer of sap formed a perfect air pocket over oh, it. That's amazing. And there it is, a, a, a preserved raindrop from another time. And these things exist in the world. And uh, I didn't know that until I had just poetically challenged myself mm-hmm. as language there. 
And then, of course, what do you do with it once you get it is a whole other problem, uh, which I take serious too, but yeah. Uh-huh. Um, what about cast and carved bone dust from every bone in the body? Yeah, I've, I've done that in a, several pieces. Um, and that, that maybe needs a little more context because it's a very loaded substance. Um, and uh, just to give you some context, uh, that, that material was only used for a body of work that was directly related to 9-11. And it was a, about a 10-year body of work that after 9-11, I, as most of us, but also as an artist, I really I put everything back on the table and I said, what does it mean to be an artist in a time of war? I didn't know. I didn't know the history of this. I, was there a history? Uh, what's the artist's responsibility? Uh, as well as a citizen, but what about the artist? So anyway, you know, I'm fast forwarding quite a bit here, but, but one, one realization I had was that if you're going to talk about war, to me, in any meaningful way, you can't shy away from the actual materials of war, since that's my focus. And one of the realities of war is that people turn to dust on the battlefield, or 9-11, for example. And I did not want to shy away from the reality of warfare as a material uh, consequence. Mm-hmm. And so I just wanted to stress that, because sometimes when, they, when, you, when you say the materials out of context, I hope they don't fall into a different category of disrespect or shock, which is nothing what I'm after. Mm-hmm. It, it's more of a, an honest discussion about what war is. Um, so that, that's why I use that material. So there's a really important um, theme or conjunction of themes that, that you just brought up that runs through your work, and it's, it's something about the relationship between memory and time. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I mean, you just said this, you, if, it, it, it's important to you to like reckon and be just honest about the fact that the past, and I think you're talking, whether it's most of us in our individual past mm-hmm. or in our collective past, mm-hmm. holds hardness, maybe mm-hmm. horror. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, see, I, as an art, so I always frame this as what's the artist's responsibility in culture? I'm always hard on myself in that way. So for example, in our era of this weird contradiction of being able to have access to all memory and paradoxically maybe is ruining our memory because it's there at any time, so maybe you don't need to hold it as long as, as normal. And I, I really push against that. And I feel like artists, that forgetting's a luxury of our time that artists don't get to have, in my opinion, or at least I don't mm-hmm. give myself that. So what that means to me is that if I'm going to use that bone dust, I better know why I'm using it. And, you know, World War I, the Civil War, were very important narratives in that body of work. So. 100, 150 years removed from those wars, how much can I actually know? I'm always hitting this barrier where I know I can't know everything. I can't really know. Yeah. And I've never been in war. I probably never will be. And I always acknowledge that, acknowledge that. But 
does that mean you don't say anything at all? And that to me is always worse. So um, I try to, this is a very personal thing. Everybody has to answer different, but I have this motto about what do I need to do to earn the respect of a material before I will use it? And that can be answered in a number of ways, but one of them is, have I remembered it in as deeply a committed way as possible? And every project requires me to answer that a little differently, but that's still off the core. So, so the mem memory is is very high, uh, loaded topic to me. It has many dimensions, mm -hmm. and that, that's just one of them. Uh, I mean, it's very hard to talk about art on the radio, you know, or even I mean, in a room where we're not looking at something. But for example, um, I did write this one down. There was a project you had called this a, a sadness silence can't touch. Mm -hmm. A small memento box containing six Civil War pain bullets, which were the bullets that soldiers bit on mm -hmm. when they were undergoing surgery mm -hmm. before the era of painkillers, made. So, what were the? Did just you tell mm -hmm. that what they were made from? They were made from. Uh, this is an, a piece that language was being used as a material, mm -hmm. uh, and the role of the war poet which is another one of these genres that what standing does the war poet have anymore in our culture? Uh, and, and that, you know, that history bothers me that we don't, we don't remember these frontline experiences. And the war poet is particularly interesting to me because of what I'm saying, this divide that I feel about, I want to experience what I'm talking about firsthand. And there's some, some things I'm just not going to be able to. Mm -hmm. So the war poet's voice is this vital memory of a, a thoughtful, reflective mind in an uh, the most worst case scenario of, of what we can produce on the planet. And those voices are really important. So those pain bullets are made, each one's made from a different recording of a war poet uh, from, from different wars. So these we, were audio tapes, cassette were audio, tapes? Yeah, it was audio tape. Melted down? It was or? melted down mm -hmm. and then made into an, I cast the original pain bullet, oh. which, so the pain bullets, you know, are, they have marks of soldiers' teeth in them. Uh, everybody knows that term, bite the bullet. This, this is where it originates, which you've lost context with that history, but um, it has a much darker background, which is they're literally biting on a piece of lead more than likely as an amputation is occurring. Mm. And so those marks, as a person sensitive to materials and form, when I see a tooth mark in a chunk of lead that's been buried in the ground for 150 years, it's as deeply moving to me as anything I've ever seen. Mm. And, but as a form, a forgotten form of memory, uh, I, I wanted to cast it and remake it in the, what I think is the power of the poet's voice. And all of these poems, I should say, were chosen because they were forms of protest by the poet who was, was on the front line. Walt Whitman, Tennyson, T.S. Eliot, Robert Graves, Dylan Thomas, mm -hmm. Siegfried yes. Sassoon, I believe. Yes, Sassoon, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, who were all in some way, you know, commenting on uh, the actual horror of war as uh, in opposition to the the honor that the public, I mean, of course, which is a dimension of it, but they were speaking to the, the 
the gruesomeness of it, which mm-hmm. can't ever be forgotten or lost. But, but as you say, in the form of poetry, so yes, the gruesomeness of it, but not the way we get the gruesomeness of it in the newspaper, right? Mm-hmm. The, grues- the gruesomeness of it uh, in the human voice. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so in a way, I made the pain bullet because I imagined the poets, the force of their voice moving their mouth, moving their teeth, and making new mm. impressions into mm. the bullet. Mm. But they're, they're impressions of, of protest uh, rather than the original impression made from pain of an amputation, for example. So there, it was very specific why I chose mm-hmm. uh, language in a form that was made by the mouth. Um, and, and that also gets at something that is so uh, evocative that you talk about also as your work as an artist of healing back through time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... I mean, which is an amazing thing for any of us to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't... It's my point about, I, at least for me as, as an artist, my point about I don't, I don't think I have the right to forget certain things. Um, that I think it's a luxury uh, of our time that should be pressed harder against. Um, but healing has presented itself in different ways in my work over the years. Um, you know, there have been times when I've actually given myself the challenge. Could I make a medicine that worked? <laughs> um, which is an odd thing to think about. Does the public want their artist prescribing the medicine? Uh, <laughs> And, you know, what's the protocol on that uh, sort of thing? But, but I thought, well, could I not contribute in that way? So I like that challenge, but then it'll go into the much more metaphorical, like, like in the war work, could, to me, the biggest problem that seems consistent with every war is, the, is a problem of divides, which is between the home front and the front line. Every generation of, of warriors comments on the gulf they feel when they come back, that there's, it seems this unbridgeable gap between the home front and the front line, between the experience they experienced and any sort of meaningful communication with the home front. So I feel, I felt, could art, could I at least try to heal that divide? Uh, and that's, so that's more of a, a metaphorical di- divide, mm. but it's also mm. a real direct psychological yeah. It could have real-world consequence if you could initiate a conversation of uh, between the home front and the front line. So the healing thing takes on many forms in my work. Yeah. How did you get interested in war? Um, you know, I mean, you are not really of a generation. You kind of missed, you missed mm-hmm. the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. born in 1972. Yeah. I mean, of course, you, you live in this. We live in this post nine eleven world, but I'm just curious about this. It was nine eleven. No, it was nine eleven. Yeah, it was absolutely nine eleven. And then that also took you back to civil war and World War One. Yeah. No, I tend when I when I get involved in a project, I I go all in, and and I you know. I I thought you know if everybody remembers what was the big question in the moment was why why us there yeah. was this complete confusion about how wide and and I was like everybody else was like I, I realized I didn't have a good answer were you in Houston at that time uh, San Antonio mm-hmm. and I was so frustrated with myself that I didn't I couldn't answer that question so it turns 
as, as you would expect when you talk about these big topics, of course it's going to take years and years to come to any understanding, uh, an intelligent way to answer that question. And, I, and I'm not, still not there, you know, all these years later. And, but that's, that was what it, so I, I decided I'm going to make work. As long as the country was at war, I thought, okay, I'm going to make work in response to it because I was grappling with this, what's the artist's responsibility in a time of war? Of course, nobody knew we were entering the longest war in our history. Yeah. And so a decade later, I was still making work about the war. But I, I think what's um, important about that is, you know, the news cycle, yes, we've been at war all this time in some sense, mm -hmm. but the news cycle moves on, right? We just get reminded of it right. periodically. Um, even our political life doesn't really hold mm -hmm. that awareness. Mm -hmm. But you've actually, as an artist, you've continued to hold that reality. And yeah. also, I think the fact that you're doing it in a spirit of, of a question, can you heal back through time? Yeah. No, it, the idea of a, a sustained meditation on a problem you know, seems like this format going out of style, yeah. uh, quickly going out of style. So again, to me, it's always framed in, okay, that's what the, everybody, you know, the other four, the journalism is moving on or the public consciousness is moving on, but that's not the standard. I, I think artists, I, I, I always say that in a big broad term. I just, I just mean me. I'm not, I'm not saying that all artists should approach it this way at all. But for me as an artist, I realized I was not going to let hold let go, um, and that I was going to continue as long as I needed to. Mm -hmm. So that takes on another dimension in our time of trying to go against the grain of immediate gratification or short-term memory, short-term attention spans, which, you know, have many artists have used that in brilliant, brilliant creative ways in their work. Um, that's as much of a moment a symbol of our moment as, as anything else. So, but I, it's not my choice. Mm -hmm. It's not my strategy. And you need the sustained meditation. You need those voices on certain problems. Um, yes, that, in that mix. Yeah, you need, you, you need it. And you need, the, you need artists on the front line, in a sense, with the other, other people in other fields who are also not, not uh, losing a, their attention to this problem. I really believe that. So I tend to latch on to, to a topic for many years when I, when I commit to something. And it's interesting because you, I mean, you reflect sometimes about being part of your generation. Mm -hmm. I don't know, are you Gen X? Is that? Yeah, Gen yeah. X. Mm -hmm. I, get, I, I can't keep track anymore. No. I don't know what we're on. What letter are we on? I don't know what letter we're at. Um, but you're right. Uh, the stereotype mm -hmm. of Gen X is... Not too deep, cynical. Yes, it, it just drove me crazy yeah. that I was being lumped in with this apolitical, apathetic, cynical, I overly ironic uh, generation, which was all also kind true. Of lazy, I think, is yeah. the stereotype. <laughs> and and it certainly that was there, but it's not the whole any, story. Yeah, no, and with it, yeah. not, no generation is all that, mm -hmm. and and. Uh, I, I really wanted to push back against that. I mean, you push back against it just in term, just by being who you are. 
I really appreciate you said, uh, I assume that my viewers are smart and want to engage. Again, that's kind of a countercultural statement. Mm. We're comrades in this. Yes. Yeah. Assuming the best yeah. of our audiences. Yeah, you should. Because, because, and, yeah, go ahead, sorry. But they rise to the occasion, don't they? Yes. I, I like assuming the audience is smart when pretty much everywhere else in culture, I think they think we're stupid. Uh, in most of the media formats we're given. And I don't, I'd rather assume the opposite. And and then if someone wants to engage, wonderful. And, and if they don't, then that's fine too. But but I, I choose that strategy and I wonder if, if you're saying it for a similar reason, because that actually changes decisions I make in the studio. It, ha it has a studio value in how I make an object. Mm -hmm. uh, say, say some more. Well, in that the layering, the, the layers of meaning in my work um, that I purposefully put there, hoping that if someone were to want to continue through those layers, that I promise there'd be something interesting. Uh, you don't have mm -hmm. to go, but but the doors open, and so but that changes in the studio practice how I'm making the object. So it has a value to me on that level too. Um, yeah, so I, I always assume we have an intelligent public. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, before we um, move on, I, I just want to actually read some very beautiful words that you wrote about time okay. and memory, mm -hmm. you know, this subject, um, this long view of time you have. Time is, of course, doing its steady work on every object ever made. This complex relationship between the maker and emotionally invested object and the growing distance between them is not new, only rediscovered each generation. I love this. Whether by an artist, a mourner, a mother, or a soldier. Later you say, you know, that you have to let go, right? Loss is about letting go, but mm -hmm. that we let go with the hope that others will grab hold. Mm -hmm. These objects ask very human moral questions. What right do we have to forget? What do we owe to each other's memories? Yeah, that's so memory now takes on a moral dimension because that's why I take it so serious because when I go, I hope someone grabs hold of me. And, uh, but I have to promise I'm grabbing hold of who's gone before. And I love that memory binds us in that way. It, we've, we've sort of written uh, a, a, a document to each other that <laughs> we're, gonna, we're gonna stay true to this. Hmm. And of course, those lines get severed all the time. Uh, and I mean, I just sometimes I overwhelmed when I think of, think of how many people have ever been on this planet and the actual tiny, tiny fraction of them that are actually remembered to, to this day. The vast majority of human lives are, they're just gone. Nobody remembers, even, you know, two, three generations down the road, uh, it's, it's easy to start forgetting. Um, and, and so memory has a spiritual dimension in that way to me. Like I, there's a title of a piece called um, Heaven as being a memory to others, yeah, and uh, that's that's kind of where I can go when we talk about spiritualism, uh, spiritual issues. That, like my grandmother, who 
was deeply close to. I, I remember her deeply every day. And when I, when I go, probably no one's going to remember mm -hmm. in that way again. So for the next few decades, her memory is still, uh, in a sense, life after death. This is, is, in a sense, what I think memory can do on the planet. Um, but, not, but, it, but it's going to taper off at some point with mm -hmm. her in particular and many of our family members. Um, but I, so I, I just like knowing I'm going to hold on. I'm going to grasp whole hard into the last moment. Uh, and I think I like, I like that art can do that. So, and I think it should, mm -hmm. should do that. Um, I'd love to talk about, in about 10 minutes, we're going to open up and have some back and forth and see what's on your mind. Um, before we do that, I'd love to talk about, you know, how you've kind of gone caught. I mean, you, 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 you know, allude to this, but you really do have a co cosmic view, right? It's not just mm -hmm. about history. And you, mm -hmm. you're working on this project, um, about the golden record. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I also think that in this project is and encapsulated a lot of the things you care about. Yeah. So, um, Talk yeah. about that. Somewhere I saw this described as, you know, returning to love and memory, what we were just talking about, across vast reaches of time and space. Mm -hmm. Yes. The golden record. It's a, it's, it's a big topic for me. Um, I, take, I take it very seriously, too. Um, just as, as a quick preface, if you don't know what it is, it's, uh, it's a record, literally a gold record, that's attached to the Voyager probes um, that were launched in the late 70s. And Carl Sagan had been asked to basically produce a document of, of uh, life on Earth. And he had to do it in the space limitations of a record, which, which at the time were about two hours of content, which think of everybody's phone in here right now uh, as thousands of times more, uh, of more power than, than he, him and his team had to work with. So it was this incredible, incredible problem of to tell the complexity of the planet through sound and image uh, in the space limitations of two hours and on a medium that we ourselves have already long ago got, got rid of. Uh, yeah. But in September of just last year, Voyager uh, crossed a milestone. Thir 38 years later, it crossed what scientists call the, the solar bubble. Uh, it had essentially entered interstellar space and attached to the site of the probe, which had this whole other mission of, of planetary exploration. But attached to it is this symbol, uh, a, a record, a long playing record with our story on it. Uh, and what, what's on it is a much longer story and beautiful one. But And you've called... Um, um, Carl Sagan, the ultimate DJ, yeah. and that the Golden Record is the greatest mixtape of humankind no, ever compiled. Well, no, it, it really is, and uh, I mean, well, because of my point earlier about what's at stake with your musical selections, like this, forever is at stake with that record. And they really gave it huge seriousness, right? I was reading, yes, because no, I knew the, I was going to talk to you. The process mm -hmm. was painstaking and. Very complex and dramatic. Yeah, and part of my goal as an artist, as with most topics, is what can the artist bring to the conversation that other fields haven't already done? Like, because when you talk about the Voyager, the Golden Record, pretty much the people who care about it know everything about it. There's not really anything new to say about it. 
But you bring an artist in, and I feel they look at it differently. And I was determined, determined to find something that had been overlooked. And I feel confident I did. Well, uh, can you tell us what it is? <laughs> well, it's a longer story. It's a, it's a long secret. story. <laughs> but, um, but can you put it in one of those um, poetic sen- yeah, um, sentences? Uh, love survives the death of cells. Yeah. The death that, of cells. Yes. And uh, Andrian, who who was who fell in love with Carl uh, during the making of that record, she's the creative director of the Golden Record. Uh, when people ask me who's who's my favorite artist, I, without hesitation, say Andrian. I, I really mean it. And part of my goal with discussing the Golden Record today is for artists to reframe it in an art discussion because of it's just brimming with creativity mm-hmm. that is lost in just strictly a science discussion. Uh, but the thing, the decisions they had to make, make and why they made them are, they're art, absolutely it's art. It was mm-hmm. art that was driving it. And, mm. and Anne uh, did some things on, on that record that I feel that the Golden Records is the greatest artwork that art history's never really accounted for uh, because it hasn't had a, it hasn't been framed that way. Mm-hmm. And, and Anne hasn't, been framed as this great artist uh, in the way that I think she should be, and and uh, that's kind of on a mission to to reframe that discussion around that. Um, I I think it's fascinating that you that love is is that thing you um, honed in on, and um, there's this you know that the philosopher in you also talks about love a lot mm-hmm. in, a, in a very philosophical, poetic way. Um, there's a sentence that you repeat, um, and you actually use this in the context of the golden record, with nothing to risk, love can't exist. Mm-hmm. Tell us what that sentence means to you and how it arose in you uh-huh. or continues to arise. Well, I can... Very specifically, also honky tonk memory. Um, one of those during those years, I remember just being floored when I read in Ripley's Believe It or Not somewhere. I don't quite remember what it was. Uh, that's incredible TV show, maybe. But every and it's become this urban myth of the mother who lifts a car off their child who's who's been injured and. I remember reading that and just being, I was shocked. I couldn't believe that a mother could do this, uh, that they could be that strong uh, in a moment of terror like that for their child. And that, you know, in my young mind, sitting in a honky-tonk, mixing with all the other songs on that jukebox, turned and started, I see now, it it started to turn into a philosophy, which... I feel like I'm more fully exploring today. And, and it's, it's a pretty simple thing to say. It's, and I even mentioned that it's painfully obvious in, in age, but God, it was mysterious in youth when, when you first realized that loving something can actually physically change your body. And that, that connection that my science mind again comes in as far as uh, that something abstract had a real world consequence. So I loved my child, and then I turned into the Incredible Hulk in the process <laughs> right. um, yeah. to, to lift this car off them. And 
Yeah, I think, I mean, it's so simple, but it's, it's an important thing. Like, something has to be at risk. Something's got to be on the line to reveal these, I think, the much more strange, complicated parts of love mm. uh, right. that I'm, I'm more interested in. Because um, you say love, and it's, our minds go to cliche often. But no, it's really weird and strange if you know where to look. And mm. it's on these weird edges of, of love when it's at risk and the things people will do in that moment that I find tell this beautiful alternate history of aesthetics. Um, like I like to say that if you could put on the table everything anyone's ever made in a moment of loss, that that would tell as beautiful a history of aesthetics and creativity as the proper art history that we all know. But that discussion doesn't happen in art history because it's the people making it are artists, or right. it's just, it's all of us. Like, when push comes to shove, what would you do? What could you make? What are you capable of? And um, something has to be at risk. So I'm interested in the creative response that comes. Uh, and often it's some form of love that we didn't see coming until that happened. <laughs> There's a, there was a project you did um, called Lunge for Love as if it were air, mm -hmm. which I think also had that story yes. in its yeah. DNA. Uh -huh. Yes. Yeah, like, it was just one of my titles that I wrote. It was actually a song title on my song title list. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that, this, these, my titles have become, they find their form finally in mm -hmm. my objects, mm -hmm. even though I, I thought they'd be for a band. Uh, so in a way, they, I still released them in a way, I guess. Yeah. Um, I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with the artist Dario Robletto at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. So I think there's some microphones wandering around that we can pass around. Is that right? Um, is there a microphone somewhere? Or am I just... I'm not seeing. Oh, here it is. I like this method I was saying beforehand because I think the, the format where you have the microphones up here and people have to come to the microphone privileges the extroverts in the room. <laughs> and so I want to encourage introverts to raise your hand and you don't have to be too conspicuous. The microphone will come uh -huh. to you. Yes. Um, it seems like a lot of your work has to do with materials and material objects. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering how you feel about a world that seems like it's increasingly digital and has a lot of information that's not necessarily embodied in physical objects. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely not a anti-technology, uh, back in the old day kind of guy. Uh, I, I always resist going down that road. But as be, because I'm sensitive to what's happening on the edges generally of any topic, for example, the past several years, the only growth industry in music has been the sale of vinyl records. And I find this, these, kind of un, these kind of forgotten little charts, uh, indicators of something deeper happening in culture, like what's to explain the resurgence of vinyl in a digital age. Uh, I think you can't answer that unless you talk about people's needs to attach emotion to things. It's like something fundamentally human about a vessel containing the emotion uh, or the bond that wants to form. 
And so I suspect there will be many things like this that pop up uh, in the coming years. Not that it's going to turn the tide at all, but, but I think there'll be more of an evening out on the topic at some point. You mean um, maybe old things will... Because I, mean, I was wondering, uh, what would the Dario Robletto of today... You know, you might not grind vinyl records to dust. I mean, mm -hmm. what would you do? Grind dead iPods to yeah. dust or something? Yeah, yeah no. Uh, no, it's not the same, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but I, I suspect people will surprise us in how they saw, answer this question in ways we just don't know yeah. yet, uh, which I, I always, I, I never worries me about this, this question because it, it's just too human to need to, need to attach emotions to things. And, and there will always be some outlet for that. Um, but if I, a quick little um, anecdote uh, to your iPod point that really floored me that happened recently. Uh, a group of students I was talking to who uh, one of the students mentioned that his father was, had willed to him his record collection and you know how touched he was by it. And, and the other students were sort of making fun of him, like, you got to carry that in life now? Like, they were thinking of it as a burden, a physical burden, yeah. the, the, to carry records forward in life. And I just had this impromptu thought. Like, I asked them, because um, I found that so interesting, because I, I don't think of it as a burden at all. But um, they, I asked them, has everybody had an iPod? Of course, everybody raised their hands. And then I said, has everybody had several iPods? Everybody raised their hands. And I said, how many of you could foresee a day when you will your iPod collection to your child? Nobody raised their hand. <laughs> and, and, but what's was so interesting is that instinctually they knew that seemed odd. It, it, the generation that ha only has had iPods. And I don't know what to make of that. I'm just saying that, that uh, there's weird things like that that will happen that I, that I will be excited to see how hmm. we solve it in the future. Okay. How does the spirituality of the music that you grind up manifest in the art object? Is it a phantom? Is it that um, it becomes a thing greater than the song, or does the song infuse it in a different way? So this is a leap I ask of the viewer, but it's a leap we are asked to do all the time uh, with all kinds of things. Um, I'm, I'm asking that, let's say, Patsy Cline's voice embodies a life experience that means something to us. It's real and authentic. And can I expect that to be in the object when I transformed her voice as a material? I'm making the leap that yes, it's there. Um, and I, I always do that with my in my, but that's one of the beauties of art, is that you can ask to make that leap. But, it, but it's not just art. I mean, we do this all the time with, uh, you know, the buildings being held up with materials we're all trusting are structurally sound. They have some meaning was placed into them by years of science uh, that we don't really question. But every, everything, every material asks something of us um, that we don't often question. And that's why the power of objects that do ask us those things, um, I find just beautiful and fascinating in the world. 
because they, they're, at some point they're a leap, you have to take a leap. And, and I, I like that, I, I've always enjoyed when art asked me to do that. Uh, like Pat, I keep mentioning Patsy Klein. obviously she's important to me, but you know, Patsy's asking me to make a leap, to, to believe what she's singing about is real and true. And, I, and I've made it many, many times with her. So uh, yeah, I, I like that art asks that much of, of us. So I, I think it's in there is what I'm saying, yeah. I, I uh, really appreciate the way that you honor the spirit of your material that you're working with. And um, I like the way you talk about memory. And particularly, I'm interested in the memory of water. And I was wondering what it felt like when you reunited that million-year-old water drop mm -hmm. with that million-year-old blossom. What did it feel like? Uh, to, you know, just to me, um, well, hmm. We'd like to know what it felt like to the water drop, but... <laughs> yeah. I, um, it, it's, it's such... I'm, I think I'm being articulate, and then I stumble here, because it's, I don't know... There's still this area where I don't, I don't have quite the words for it sometimes. You know, I prep so long. I look so hard. So much time and energy went into finding that raindrop and that blossom. And then the moment comes when they're together again. And it's, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Um, it I couldn't have done it, as I mentioned earlier, what do I need to do to earn the respect of that material? And all of those things that I did to get to that moment produce this sensation that's hard, hard for me to describe. Um, so I'm sorry I'm stumbling on that. But, what, was there yeah. actually a moment, though, where you brought them together? I mean, that, uh -huh. that you... Yeah, the idea was to bring them together again. Mm -hmm. to, to, I, I have this question I like to ask about, can art finish something that never got finished? And in this way, it was, could that drop finish hitting that blossom all these years later? Uh, so that, that was in a, a manifestation of that question. And that, that question has propelled many, many artworks. Can art finish something that's never that never got finished? Um, that leads to these kinds of interactions. Right. I think it's true that um, there's this common perception that 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 art connects us with the artist in a way that it that the art is a self-expression, and so the kind of the idea is it's a it's a way to get inside the artist's head. Uh, when I look at your work, and then then I listen to the way you describe it, um, it it feels like instead of connecting us with you, it connects us with other lives. Um, and another way I was thinking about it is, is when I've looked at your work, it, it, it's almost like walking into a natural history museum. Mm -hmm. And that I'm, I'm connecting with something else kind of bigger or other lives or something distant. How do you, how do you think about um, the, the role of the self in the artwork? Do you consciously try to erase or cover up? It, it's... To me, it's, this is a great fundamental art question about, because as most artists, we tap into our own history as a starting point. Many young artists do that. And, uh, you know, Patsy Klein is, we believe her because she's singing about her heartbreak, and that's why it counts. Um, but my relationship to those histories that I'm often referencing in the work 
it, the dynamic's different. It can't be about me. Uh, I mean, I'm making it, I'm initiating it, but the point is not me. Uh, and I do try to taper out myself as much as I can because it's not, you know, especially when we're talking about the suffering of war. I mean, how, come on, how can, I, how can I even pretend to know? Uh, so, so then it like, gets even more complicated when, depending on the topic where it can't, I can't even, I would never even hint that I, I'm suffering in some sense um, when I'm talking about suffering at this mass level. And, but that's not to say there's not an emotional toll that comes with the work, and definitely it does, but that's not the, what drives me to make the work, um, or it's not what drives me to make the work about my own uh, the, the emotional toll I, I may be experiencing in it. Uh, so I tried to, to answer you, I do try to taper out my voice in, in that way because the, because the narrative I'm trying to talk about is what I want all the attention on. But then, you know, I made the object and there's, the artist can never remove themselves totally from it. Uh, so it's, it's not always possible. Yeah, so yeah, there is a, there is a conscious effort to do that. But I would think that it must please you to hear someone describe your work that way. It that does. Your, your work connects our lives with other lives. It, it really does, because I, every artist, you know, I, like I ask young artists that I work with, um, why should anybody care about your problem? Uh, and when you make work about that problem, and I think every artist should be hard on themselves about that. and. You know, that's why someone like Billie Holiday or Patsy Cline have done this. They've somehow solved this riddle of singing about their own experience, but it means, but it was all of our experience. And I, I mean, that's like this puzzle I'll always be trying to figure out of, of how do you tap into the personal, but it's meant to be for the public uh, interaction and, and meaning. So. I think artists should always be hard on themselves about that the work doesn't just begin and end with their own problem, mm -hmm. <laughs> their own problems, uh, even if that's what can be the fuel sometimes. I think the microphone is over here somewhere, right? Here? So what I was wondering is, uh, do you always use, uh, when you're grinding records or things of that nature, uh, do you always use 60s to modern era vinyl, or have you ever used uh, like the pre-vinyl 78 material that's harder, uh, essentially immune to any sort of weathering, and yet is also incredibly brittle, and therefore it's interesting to see how it's been able to make it from, you know, 1920s era America to modern day. Yes, definitely, and, you know, I can, I can, I know the age of a record just by scraping it at this point, because of, I, I know the history of the materials being used um, and the you know the advancing technology with plastics and vinyl and shellac, uh, but yes, I have used those, and that's probably the oldest media I've used are 78s. But I've used sound that predates that era. Um, but I, I would so I'm I'm a big historical sound buff uh, and and pushing the boundary of the absolute earliest recording ever made. Hmm. Uh, the birth of 
the audio experience is something I feel very, very well versed on, and it's a fascinating field. The people who are trying to inch the line back in time. Uh, so I've used sounds that are much older, but as a medium, I, the seventy-eights I, I have used. Yeah. Wasn't there something about the same year that the Golden Record was launched? The person died who created the first audio recording. Oh, I don't know. The, the, uh, There's some mm-hmm. symmetry there. Oh, never mind. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you'd know. Um, where's the microphone? Raise your hand. Okay. Hi. Um, you had mentioned earlier something that I found intriguing, and it just kind of got glossed over. Mm. Um, being very badly depressed when you were younger and visiting your dad and having this experience in the room with uh, hearing Sgt. Peppers and you came out and you were an artist. And it seemed like, that. I guess the way my mind thought, it was like, well, that must also mean that you were very depressed and you came out of the room and you weren't depressed anymore. I don't know if that resolves as quickly as becoming an artist, but I just was wondering if you could speak a little bit more on... Um, what was out of kilter that was causing that depression, and how did that resolve? Hmm. Yeah, hmm. Um, you know, th- this is one of those topics we're f- afraid to talk about, and it shouldn't be at all, and I really believe that. Uh, but it, it, I hesitate because it, it, it's related to the previous question, where I don't want my work to be about that. But clearly, when I look back, I was, it was depression, absolutely. But I mean, five years old, it, it was a constant in life. And I just didn't understand what it was. Uh, and it has never gone away. If anything, you just learn how to harness it, I guess. And I, I wouldn't probably, I'm an artist because partly I need, it, it's, it gives me a way to harness it. And to funnel it into something that takes it beyond my own my own problem, as I was saying. Um, but I didn't. <laughs> when I left the room, it was still there, and and it it just had a purpose that it didn't have before. And and I struggle every day to keep that purpose on site. Uh, I don't, or I'll, you know, I I just I have to have that to keep to keep moving forward with it. Um, yeah, but, and I'm sure it's, I mean, it's a very common experience and I'm sure many artists would talk about it. We all find different ways to, to deal with it. Um, but there's nothing like <laughs> reading a story of a Civil War soldier uh, build, carving their leg from scratch that will set you straight very quickly on your own personal uh, depression. And and I'm constantly looking for those narratives to help put things in perspective. Is that you talk a lot about uh, your lifelong fascination with um, survival mm-hmm. and the human creative response to loss, mm-hmm. and it sounds to me like that's just a huge root for you of of that in your own life. Yeah, if I had to say in one word, what's the overarching theme of my work? It's survival. And then it and then it divides off into all these other things, but it's def- and then I would yeah the two terms I like to use are the the logic of loss and the creative response to loss as uh, histories uh, that that 
cross over culture and time that speak to something basic, basically human, that every era, every culture deals with grief and mourning and loss in that the creativity was the response to the loss, that that, that, that the loss uh, insisted on some sort of aesthetic, uh, writing a poem, making an object, uh, something. And I, and I so that, that notion that loss and love are connected at some fundamental level like that, I, I find that just beautifully human. Or even, I think, as you, you, know, you talk about memory, you know, intentional memory is itself a creative response to loss. Yes, right? memory, yeah. Memory is one of our you tools. You don't even have to be yeah. an artist, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a tool, it's a weapon <laughs> against decay and against forever being, uh, loss being permanent. And that's a very human thing to want to struggle against that. Um, so. Where's mm -hmm. mm. the microphone? Here? as a memory to your mother and father, each individually, did you do any piece of work to honor your parents? My mother has shown up in other works, uh, definitely my grandmother, uh, but my father, that was the only time. Yeah. Um, well, like you mentioned, uh, like I remember, I never forget the day my mother gave me her 45s when she was a teenager, which had been sealed since she was a teenager in this box. And I opened them up and I realized the last person who touched this was my teenage mother. And she left behind something in those grooves when she last played them and touched them. So I wanted to see, could I reignite the cells that had literally, literally fallen into those grooves? The bacteria. The bacteria, yeah. yeah. So I did all these weird experiments trying to get to culture the the cells that were lying in there of a teenage, my teenage mother, who I was still a distant thought in her head um, uh, long down the road. So yeah, but my grandmother also was very prominent in many works. Um, yeah, I, I, we didn't touch on this at all, but my mother went from the honky tonk to a hospice. Uh, yes. And uh, that is equally equally left a mark uh, of being being around the hospice for the next 20 years after that. My mother's quite an amazing woman. Um, and um, so the hospice, the philosophy of that is pretty crucial to my mm -hmm. ideas about an artist as well. Let's hmm. take one more question. I don't know. No? Okay. There's a hand. An introvert who finally <laughs> took the lead. Here, mulling it over, phrasing it five different ways. Okay. I was wondering, I'm a believer that objects can carry energy from people that were emotionally charged when they handled them last and whatnot. And I was wondering if that ever happened to you when you came in contact with one of the objects that you had worked on procuring and then either got something from it or had something profound dawn on you in the moment when you handled it or saw it the first time. Well, what kind of experience do you mean? Like, um, 
Like maybe the first time that you actually saw or held like the pain bullet or uh -huh. like witnessed something like that that's emotionally charged or something that was emotionally charged for you and then something else came, you know? Well, I definitely have an emotional response um, to those objects, especially when I, when I touch them. And it's very important to me to touch the things I make. Uh, I make, I make everything to this day in my work, and it's very important to me to do that. Um, so, I mean, I have an emotional response, but I don't know if that's what, what you're asking so much. Um, I'm sort I'm of epiphany, are you thinking? Yeah, I'm sort, of, I'm sort of asking, have you ever felt something come from the object, in a, like a spiritual carryover or something? Like, I'm having a hard time phrasing it, but, you know. Well, I think, I think I've, I think maybe we're using different words to, to talk about a, an essentially similar experience. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word spiritual. It, it doesn't feel like the right word to me when, I, when I'm having that encounter. But definitely emotions are involved, a sense of responsibility. Uh, did I change in some way? Absolutely. Uh, even my physical body, the way I'm touching it, the way I handle it is changing. Do I move forward in life differently now that I've held a pain bullet? Absolutely. Uh, so I've changed in those ways, uh, which I, you know, we can, we can title it different things, but, but it's certainly, I'm certainly constantly changing every time I start a project, because um, I think the, the piece, the, the material demands it from me. So the alchemy happens in the object and also in you, and also in the, the viewer. The people I who hope, take the yeah. art in. But definitely, definitely me. I, I think to remain unchanged would have been to not have remembered at all. Because to me, the memories intertwined with changing uh, a thought pattern or physical behavior or did my level of empathy rise that day? I mean, all these, some change had to have occurred for me to feel it was a meaningful experience with the material. Um, and that's constantly happening in, in my work. So I, I hope that's answering you, but. Um, you are also working more recently on a project called The Boundary of Life is Quietly Crossed. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, which does come a bit to this notion of the hospice that your mother worked in, mm -hmm. back to the big philosophical mm -hmm existential reality of death. Um, and my understanding is that a kind of central motif for that is um, your experience of your grandmother's heartbeat as mm -hmm. she died. Is that yes. right? Yes. Um, I had the, what's clearly now seems like a privilege of, of being by her as she passed away and just instinctually put my hand on her chest, and I'll never forget those last five beats and uh, what they felt like. And that deeply changed me. And the time span between the last beat up to the moment we're sitting here 
is a very distinct space that I feel because uh, you always assume there's a beat after the last one and then the brain realizing that's not coming is something I, I still grapple with and but I think what hit me the hardest in that moment was that I didn't know anything about the heart and it 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 was like 9-11 in that I thought how am I ever going to understand this experience if I don't understand the heart? It's cultural history, it's mechanics, it's, I mean, everything. So right now I'm in this long process of trying to answer to myself that question of what, what, is, what does the heart mean? Um, right, the largely unexplored history of the human heartbeat. Yeah, and as usual, there's a hundred things that nobody knows about that I'm sure nobody knows that um, that are fascinating about about the story about this unknown history of the human heartbeat, but it originates with her definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, what you know, I've, again, I'm reading from things that have been written about it that it spans the earliest attempts to record and visualize the human heartbeat, the female brain waves, and heartbeat recordings aboard a NASA probe at the edge of the solar system. Yeah, and that, recent developments yeah. in technology too. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's a big. It's another big project. And um, <laughs> but everybody should know that there there is literally a heartbeat on the other side of the solar bubble, and it's Andrian, um, who I mentioned earlier. So our representative. It's her heartbeat. Yeah. And and her brainwaves as a well. A recording, oh, that Carl Sagan made. Uh, well, they're of her. Yeah, it, I don't want to do the injustice to that story. It's okay. it's too good and long. Uh, but but I like I like you know as we're walking down the street, do you realize there's a human heartbeat on the other side of the solar bubble, and that she's alive and she's on our planet and she's an amazing artist and. And I, I love that story. And then, and then the other thing was, I thought, well, who was the first person to ever have had their heart recorded? Somewhere on the planet must be that milestone, which we don't really think of as a milestone, but yeah. it really is actually a pretty important milestone. The idea that you could record and hear your own heart again uh, is pretty recent in science, uh, in science history as an experience that we can have. So I've been on this quest to find it. Where is it? Um, and can we hear it again? And I have found it. And uh, but, I, but I won't go into that How, so much. When but, was it? Well, first recorded. Yeah. Does that even get complicated? <laughs> <laughs> yes, because it predates Edison, and it gets into weird territories about what we consider recorded sound. Mm. Mm. Uh, but technically, it's 1853. Uh, the first time uh, someone attempted to visually register the beating of the, it was the pulse actually. Uh, but you know, everybody can picture in their head a heart monitor, the very common sign, it's like a universal sign. But think about it, there was a time when no one, someone had to be the first to make the heart, the heart sign. Uh, and to me, that is one of the most important marks ever made uh, as far as humans reflecting on what they are. And it's this beautiful story of how it happened and the materials used mm. to record it, which I won't go into now, but, but trust me, it's, it's really breathtakingly beautiful. And that it's still on the planet is, is like, it's miraculous to me. 
mm. that we have access to it. It's it's moving to think about it. That's moving to think about you with your grandmother because now, you know, anyone who has a baby now, it's right. one of the first things that happens that you hear the heartbeat and it's so mm-hmm. incredibly exciting, right. thrilling beyond measure. But really, when you tell that story about being with your grandmother and hearing her last five heartbeats... Yeah, it was, and it was a, it was a sensation. Maybe to answer your question about being moved by touching something, and you know, at that point she was so frail and thin that it really felt like her heart was right in my hand, and, and yeah, I'll never forget that, and I don't want to forget it. And but to come to terms with it, I want to answer these other questions about the human heart. Like, when did this start? Why does it matter to feel somebody's heart, or why does it matter to hear one? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And when you start to dig into those questions, you you get to some pretty fundamentally human questions about how we uh, identify ourselves in in the beating of a heart. And it's a much more complex, weird story than you would first think. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm often drawn to stories that seem like they're cliche almost that you can't really say anything else new about it. And I always like that. I take that as a challenge as an artist. Right. Like, no, there's something we, did, we didn't find uh, hiding in there. So. so I think that kind of comes back to some of these driving questions in your work. Does art have the power to fix something that never got fixed, to correct a wrong that's never been resolved? What can art do anymore? I wonder, just in closing, if you would talk a little bit about how those questions and how you live those questions changes as you go through life Mm -hmm. and and changes you, changes Mm -hmm. how you live your life. My idealism has not budged at all. Uh, And I'm not going to let it budge. I I love the the nonsense that it seems like when you you hear an artist say, art can change the world, um, that maybe you think only a young artist would fall into this kind of trap. And I don't care if it's true or not. I, I like I like believing in it, and because it changes how you make things and uh, you approach things differently. And that's what I'm looking for is is if I make this object like my point about my mother's musical decisions, is there's something at stake? If I go into the studio and start an object that I've put that much expectation on, then it changes how you make it. And that's what I, I want. Um, so I'm constantly trying to find ways to still create objects that there's something at stake with them. Uh, and it, it, of course, changes me in the process. And in no way am I suggesting I'm there or <laughs> that I'm ever going to get there. But that's almost not the point. It's, it, the point is the struggle to keep, keep trying to find it. I don't know if that answered you so well. Yeah, yeah. no, it does. Yeah. And I think the piece you didn't say is then to hear it come back at you, you know, the idea that then you have created objects that join our life with other lives. Um, yeah, I, I, hope, I hope that happens. Um, you never know, but the artist, yeah, the artist in me keeps trying for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Try, so. mm-hmm. Well, Dario Robleto, mm-hmm. citizen, DJ, philosopher, artist. Mm-hmm. It's been a pleasure to be in your company tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you.
Well, that says, that just said what I was going to say. Um, but thank you both so much for sharing such a um, fascinating, personal, thought-provoking conversation with us. Um, Krista, come back anytime. Yeah. Dario, I want to talk to you yeah. again and again. Um, and thank you all for being such a great audience and, yeah. and spurring the conversation. Thank you. Thank you.